Welcome to the Art of Wargaming on the Ear Verm Network. I am Yaga Malark. And I am Thumbs. And we are coming to you with part four of Machiavelli tonight. Before we start with that, I have a rather exciting announcement. We are coming to you on a brand new set of microphones on some booms with some pop filters. It's exciting. We're starting to look professional-ish. So this would be the part where I would normally start talking about Wolfpack Opener. They were very busy, however, and while I've gotten some very good information back from some attendees, I'm still waiting on a question from uh, the event coordinators so that I can give you some really good information on it. So hopefully next week you'll be hearing about Wolfpack Opener. Pretty sure that the event coordinators are just worn out and trying to get all of the post-event things accomplished. We look forward to talking to you about that next week. Well, the nice thing about the Belagarth meta is that it is generally slow enough that we will still be talking about an event a couple weeks later. It's not like the world has entirely changed if we're a week or two away. Oh, no doubt. And, and especially because this is the winter, and winter typically tends to be our off-season, if we do have an off-season. There's not as many events happening, not as many people are, are traveling as far. So if Belagarth did say to have an off-season, it would definitely be the winter. So I, that, that's also a nice thing. Things are a little bit slow-moving, you know. Again, we're looking forward to talking about it, though, and, and to being able to bring even more of that content to y'all. So if you know any event coordinators or realm leaders or unit leaders, we would love to send them a questionnaire so we can talk about y'all on the air and increase your national profile please please give us more things to talk about we do this every week we do so much stuff we have to talk about and we love doing it like i I, the the people who have reached out and had things to say feedback on the show or just telling us that they were enjoying listening to us on their drive to work we really appreciate that like that that feedback i mean it's not necessarily why we do this we do it because we have a love of war gaming and military science but uh, attention's nice oh yeah no i was talking to uh cohen in california and she was like it's weird talking to you and not hearing you talk about Sun Tzu. I don't know what's going on. And I was like, that's the nicest thing someone said to me in a while. Like, Oh, for sure. Or I, we, we just had an old-time mentor of both of ours, uh, Orion, told me tonight that he had basically binge-watched or listened to all of our episodes and was uh, very much looking forward to the next one. So that was that was also wonderful to hear. Also, not to toot our own horns too much, but too uh, much. maybe to name drop just a little bit. I was talking with Mark over at Lorehammer. Any of you guys who are in the, uh, the Warhammer 40k community will probably know of Lorehammer, which is like the premier lore podcast for Warhammer. I mean, they do everything. They've done an episode on everything in a broad sense. They're going through and going through the lore in a very specific sense and they can present this information to you in a way that is concise and humorous i mean these guys are 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 hilarious they're they're funny in the way that only canadians can be and i've loved listening to their stuff i felt like i was fairly knowledgeable in some things and i learned some things because they go through the whole trove of warhammer lore they bring a good presentation and so i was talking with mark over there i was just trying to get some feedback or not some feedback but some um technical help advice yeah because i was wanting to get some more microphones expand our setup i really like their sound and so i had hit him up and was talking to him about that then he said he'd give a listen to the podcast of course i was very excited about that because i've been listening to mark talk for several years now and it it would be nice to hear his, his feedback and he was very praiseworthy 
I, 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 it was very nice what he had to say about it. It's, it's just always nice. It's always yeah. nice to hear when, when somebody that you look up to likes your work because it, it just makes you feel good inside, for sure. Well, the, the thing about creating art, there can be debate whether podcasting or radio is art. It is. It is absolutely art. I guess that wasn't much debate. Uh, no, I'm it, not, not going to debate you. Sorry. <laughs> ongoing argument with my dad who did radio who was like, no, radio is not art. I'm like, oh, come on, man. And this but, is Craig. Yeah. Uh, Missoula oh. people. My dad did Craig and Al on the mornings for years. The this Craig. was this guy's got 46 years of radio experience. The thing about creating art is that you want other people to see your art. Sure. Or and, hear your art or whatever And get something is. out of it, for sure. I, 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 you know, it's it's nice to have it seen, and it's also nice to know that it's brought something to somebody else's life, whether it's your painting or your poem or your or your podcast that is, has brought some measure of joy to somebody in this otherwise bleak existence. Yeah, that feels good. Yeah. So to circle back to where we started from here, please let us know what you're thinking. It really does mean so much us and on the opposite thing like i said early on in the podcast the feedback from rama and him helping me to clarify some of these historical ideas so that they were coming across better that's helped with our delivery i would say that it's helped with the overall show so we also really appreciate constructive criticism if there's something we could be doing better please let us know we're, we're trying to put this out there so that y'all can enjoy it so that, that's i think that's what's to be said about that mm-hmm. i have a new game and i am stoked about it and this relates to the podcast i, I swear because I've, I've been trying to pick up a bunch of new strategy games games recently so that I can be really honing what we're talking about in a bunch of different mediums. So I look at Planetfall. On the surface, it looked a lot like civilization. You're in charge of your cities, you control the different economies and the productions, whether or not you're warlike or not, you build your armies, and then you lead them against other nations. The difference here is, instead of just the two armies kind of smacking against each other and a dice simulation making the battle for you, you can do manual combat in this game, and it actually makes every battle a lot like a 40k match where you have your army that you've brought, that you've put together, that you've modded to be the way that you want it to be, and you're going against another army, sometimes of similar size, or if you've done the math right, you've got the numbers on your side. And it's just a lot of fun. I've, I've been killing a lot of hours with that the last uh, the last week or so. I would highly recommend that to anybody who's looking for a good game that combines both tactical and strategic levels. It has both elements in there. That could be so. really hard to find, too. Like it's, it's really hard to find. You usually have one or the other. Yeah, because like you and I played a lot of civilization and i love civilization it's such a good game series but you have the upper level stuff there is no on field combat yeah it's all strategic it's just all strategic but on the other side you know you've got games like space marine tactics or or anything like that or or any of your like tactics games which are usually turn-based which this one is as well but that kind of simulate that field combat simulation so to have them both in the same place is really convenient but yeah so that's that's a really fun one and also on that same topic of wargaming last week when we were talking about starting with the artillery forward, I promised you all that I was going to do that in my next game, and I held true to form. I'm glad you remembered this, because I was listening on Monday when the episode came out, and was just like, I wonder how that did go. It went really well. Uh, Juniper was my opponent. She brought her Necrons, which are always fun, and I had my Death Guard. Anybody who knows much about the Necrons or the Death Guard, the Death Guard are very hard to kill. The Necrons are very hard to get to stay dead. So between the two of us... (laughs) It was a long game. (laughs) I mean, the first round, neither of us killed anything. I think we each lost maybe a unit or a few hit points from a model, but largely we had a distant slap fight, and then the rest of it was absolutely brutal. But I did start with my artillery forward, and it had mixed results. Obviously, it was a lot more in the open. 
which is to say it was more easily reached by her tomb blades and wraiths that were coming in very quickly. So there was that as a downfall. I mean, they were plague burst crawlers, so they can take a hit. That's not the concern. Yeah, they're for still them. a tank. And they're a death guard tank. And so they're a tank that can eat wounds. Even if you hit them, they, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to take that wound because mm-hmm. mm, Nurgle. That was, that was whatever. With a different type of tank or a different type of artillery, it might not have worked as well. But because I was using Death Guard, my tanks were still very much alive at the end of the game. And with a good placement of my Terminators, I managed to repul- repulse her assault. That being said, I ended up having to take a side position. Not, I wasn't able to take a central command of the board because of uh, just terrain placement. And Machiavelli goes over that. He says, you know, any best plan is going to have to move around the terrain. And right there, smack dab in the center of my front was a, uh, a big piece of terrain. And so I had to go to the left and I picked a nice little spot and I think with some refinement, the tactic could definitely have some merit. So if, if you guys want to try it at home, give try me your feedback. Home. Yeah, yeah. I think I think we're ready to talk about Machiavelli, though. What about you? You know, when we were talking <clears throat> about constructive criticisms at mm-hmm. the beginning of it, we have some constructive criticisms about this chapter. We do. For one thing, Machiavelli was very disorganized this entire time. Usually when I'm going through and taking my notes, I can just basically paraphrase what he's saying in an outline format, and they will be relatively well organized on the page when I'm done. But for this one, I had four or five different sections of notes that were about different pieces of information being scattered throughout the chapter that I ended up organizing into the way that he was supposed to organize it in the beginning. Because in the beginning he says, we're going to talk about how to use your army and what things a captain should consider. And then it's not very well organized after that. Like he occasionally mentions those little keywords again, but he's, he's really all over the place in this chapter. If our notes seem at all disorganized this time around, I blame the dude who's been dead for several hundred years. Yeah. Yep. It's his fault. And then uh, the other thing that we wanted to mention before we got into this is you may have noticed after, uh, I don't know, the 18 episodes that we've been doing, but there has been a lot of emphasis on organization and training. I know when I first started studying military science, I was really hoping there would be a lot more flash and bang, you know? Here's where you do a backflip. When they step into the ninth quadrant, you step into the twelfth and it unlocks the entire battlefield or or some other metaphysical contraption that would unleash your true potential or, or or whatever other anime trope you want to watch. Yeah, I was going to say, that sounds like a shonen anime. And I would watch that one, to be honest. But but it doesn't work that way, unfortunately. Uh, the battlefield is absolute chaos. Trying to come up with a plan on the field actively is, is just not going to be the way of it. And that's not what Machiavelli or Sun Tzu or really any other military theorist is going to tell you before it even starts. It is won or lost with the organization and training of the armies in question. Because whichever one knows how to do its thing better and can do it in the heat of the the moment without being told they're going to naturally do better in the heat of the moment yeah without being told we talk about it in Belagarth a lot with muscle memory that when people are getting frustrated particularly in their first year that i'm like don't worry about it man i have muscle memory that you don't yet so i don't have to have that second of thought before you make a choice years and years and years yeah and even if you automatically know what you're gonna do it takes a moment for your brain to go like oh that's how it works right no exactly I, whereas if you train often like i said i want to reference that documentary on the Congo that I was watching and I'd I'd mentioned in an episode forever ago this fellow who was talking about why he is constantly working out when he's not on the battlefield is train hard fight easy yeah if you are training way harder than anything you're going to see on the field the field is going to be a cakewalk to you and even if you're not training that hard even if you don't have the 
time or the energy or the body capacity to train yourself into an A-list fighter, there's still something you can be doing every single day that can lead to your, your betterment as a fighter every single day. Whether it's pel work or shadow boxing or forms or sparring with somebody if you have a roommate that is, that is up for that. There's a lot of different things you can be doing every day to just get it ingrained into your body, into your nerves, into your muscles, wherever that stuff is stored so that it just becomes second nature because that's that's the important thing in any sort of wargaming is that you already know what you're going to do ahead of time. Whatever yeah. scenario arises, you've already prepared for it. Yeah, I mean, as we've talked about, I'm not much for the Pell and stuff like that and I have paid for that. There's no getting around it. I would be better if I practiced daily but part of the reason I was able to get to where I was is just there was a point in my life where I was able to go to practice three days a week and I was able to just spar people constantly and the more I sparred the nice thing about wargaming is even a loss is still training because mm-hmm. you get up afterwards which you know no one will in the battles we're talking about today well, no and, and I mean on the battlefield absolutely not but even back in in the times that we discussed anybody who's listening who's been in the military and I don't care if it's Air Force or Navy definitely Marines and definitely Army you are practicing what you're supposed to do every single day you're constantly drilling I mean you've got PT in the morning and then throughout the day you're practicing whatever your job is and then you have field training exercises that you go on at least once a month when you're active duty and then once a season if you're reserve but you're constantly practicing your skills because that's the only way that you can keep them sharp to think that you're going to become a master very quickly just going to practice once a week it's not going to happen well who does that there's there's nobody who goes to school once a week and emerges a master there's nothing there's nothing in the world that you can do that so again you're going your skill cap is wherever you set it your ceiling is wherever you put it and that is going to be judged and gauged based on your level of training and the organization you come to this with like thumbs was just saying one of the benefits of what we do is that you can get up and learn from your mistakes. That really only works if you're actively trying to learn from your mistakes. If you're looking at every fight critically and really trying to to understand what you're doing well and what you're not. And not beating yourself up about it. I'm not sitting there, I'm not saying you get to the end of the fight and you'd start whipping yourself talking about all the things you did wrong. You should absolutely acknowledge what you did wrong and what you did right. Well, and a lot of times you won't feel like you're making advancement. Like it is really easy to get frustrated because you're losing 15, 20, 25 times but then at times it'll click uh, i thought of this story that you used to tell me from when you were in the military of they gave you a padded gun what to do if someone comes close to you training the pugils yep that's the pugils it training. and you were just like i've trained my whole life for this i moment. was so <laughs> excited i was so excited like just about everybody else in the unit looked like they had no idea what they because they've never used those muscles in those ways before like unless you've trained with a weapon you don't know how to use a weapon watching kung fu movies or or night movies does not actually teach you how to use a sword go figure and so most of the people coming to bugles training had absolutely no idea what to do with a weapon in their hands i had used a padded weapon for uh at least six years at that point so yeah i was i was excited i was very excited about that and this advice is true of literally anything you're doing i used to tell people with art they just get really frustrated they're like oh i can't draw like well neither could i but you know you do 100 drawings and one of them is any good and then you do another 100 drawing and only one is any good but when you look back at that first one that was really good suddenly a lot of the stuff that you've been doing that's bad is better than that good one that you did because you've just made the mistakes and learned the fixes and your skill level just keeps getting higher you know um, i'm sure it's true with 40k as well oh it is i mean and, and this the learning curve with 40k is super steep because you're not just trying to learn a new skill you're trying to do it while doing math on the fly and since most people don't do math on purpose often the learning curve can be quite steep while you're still trying to learn those patterns everything that's going on of course the same thing with bell 
I mean, if you haven't been an athlete at some point in your life, if you haven't inured your body to hardship and to toil, after about 15 minutes, this, the muscle burn is real convincing. Yeah, you just get tired. Mm -hmm. and, and that happens to everybody, but if you've been doing it for 15 years, you, you just ignore it. It's another one of those habits. It's all about building habits. So that's, that's why. That's why Machiavelli continues to harp on organization and training. That's why Sun Tzu continued to harp on organization and training, because even though it is by far the least flashy part of being a part of any sort of militant organization, it is, however, the most important. Yeah, absolutely. It's where you instill everything from your, your again, your basic practical skills to how to work together as a team. Can't do that if you don't practice. Yeah, it's even what we were talking about earlier on. We are getting better because we've been practicing. Exactly. So as we continue to get better and as uh, we continue to study more, we're going to talk now about the real mate and potatoes of part four, Machiavelli. The way I saw it, this meat and potatoes of this section can be divided into the two main ideas that he started the chapter with. Mainly, how do you use your army once you're in the field, and what considerations should a captain have in their mind at all time? Now, these sections were largely cherry-picked from different sections within the same chapter because, like I said, he was kind of all over the place, but I did find some very good patterns to what he was talking about that might be very applicable to what we do. So, in the first section, we're going to talk about using your army once you're on the field, and this is assuming that you have been well-trained, well-prepared, well-organized, everybody is well-equipped, has had a good night's sleep, your army's come fit and fighting to the field. So how do you use it? The first thing he cautions against is these dangers of overextension, because it can be very tempting to have your army hit your opponent in waves, whether it's tempting on the field because your front rank gets too far ahead, or whether it's tempting to think that it might be useful to have a shock troop go first. The issue is, if the army becomes overextended, your mathematical chances of winning begin to diminish because all of your soldiers play off the strength of every other soldier in your team. Any field that you've been on in a fighting game, every single fighter on that field is playing off of the strengths of every other fighter on the field. And so anytime you get too much distance between yourself and your teammates, your response time just gets bad. The response time gets bad and those mathematical contributions that you're giving to one another, those pressure exertions of just your sheer presence begin to diminish. And that's what Machiavelli is cautioning against here is, is again, this hitting your opponent in waves. And I see this all the time in, in 40k too, especially with people who have units that are quicker than others, especially in melee armies, they'll start getting separated and then the fastest will hit, be absorbed, because then you've got like a third of an army hitting an entire army, and then the next third will hit and get absorbed, and then whatever's in the back line gets destroyed by a still fully functional full army that has just fought three small armies in succession. Yeah, it's a lot easier to kill three people than it is to kill ten people. Yes. That's... Yes, and so if you've got, you know, ten people on the opposing team, and you're killing them three at a time... Three and a third, I guess, but that wouldn't really work for this. 3.333 repeating... That point three 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 person is already gone. That's... Anyways, I'm sorry. We didn't count you, point three three. But yeah, so so these dangers, you, you want to be able to exert pressure on you, on the other fighters' spheres of influence. Again, your your presence near a friend keeps them from being rushed. And so if everybody's got presence near each other, it just keeps everybody from being rushed. Obviously, flankers aside, they serve an entirely separate purpose. Especially as me, who is mostly a spear user at oh, for this sure. point. Yeah, yeah, 
that losing that another person there is, can be so damaging when you, you've got a good shieldman in front of you yay if the shieldman gets excited and runs off after something because it's faster than i am which most people are i am suddenly super vulnerable and not just spearman but any pole arms user that doesn't have a shield they're automatically depending on those shieldmen to keep them safe remember that machiavelli re- recommends these mixed tactics because then the shield the, the the sword and borders can keep the spears safe and the spears can extend the reach of the sword and borders it's a it's a mutually beneficial arrangement that stops being so mutually beneficial if one party or the other decides to leave the arrangement uh quick thought as a spear fighter a little more related to what to do to balance some of this is take your pole arm your spear your red whatever onto all the all fields where you don't have anyone like that for you mm-hmm. so when it does happen to you you're like okay i have basic ideas instead of just being like uh uh where's steve oh yeah i mean like he's saying as a pole arm user you absolutely want to learn how to be self-sufficient that's not to say that it's not very nice to have somebody there who's looking out for you oh yeah just because we were talking about training earlier i was definitely thinking about that for sure uh yeah again training individually to make sure that you can take care of yourself but also training as a team to make sure that you continue to protect the people on your team that need to be protected for instance archers and uh, spearmen or in the case of 40k uh your your long range weaponry your artillery and your backline tanks they definitely do not want to be left alone by themselves because your front rank decided to go off elsewhere overextension is an issue and it needs to be watched carefully and part of the way that you can prepare against this overextension is with field placement now there's a couple of different ways that machiavelli recommends placing your troops in relation to your opponent at the beginning of the battle and the first one is based on the numbers how is your number ratio compared to your opponent he says that if you have a smaller force you want to occupy a side and by what he what he means by side is that on on one of your sides you want to make sure that you have something that is downright impassable a swamp a massive marsh a lake a cliff, a big wall, a void into nothingness, just just something, which is what we usually have in Belagarth, just something there that cannot be traversed, where you don't have to worry about any maneuver, because then that cuts down on the ability for you to be double enveloped. Yeah, uh, you only have like two or three places you have to look after instead of four places. So numerically, that works out far better for you. And so again, when when we're talking about what we're doing in wargaming, it's very convenient, because when we're doing anything that involves physical wargaming, we have a defined field edge, which means that you can just pick a side and it doesn't have to be a mountain or a swamp it can just be the edge of the field and immediately boom you've got a protected flank flank around this you filthy casual Uh, yeah, they can't, can they? Unless they try to wall walk. You guys allowed me to do that for the first couple of years in the gym, and then when nobody else was doing it, like, suddenly it became illegal. But I get it. I get it. Because, you know, game-breaking. Also, it'd be really easy to hurt yourself, but... I mean, I did. Constantly. Especially after my body started giving out on me. I think that was one of the first moments that I realized it is because I... What we're talking about is in the, the gym where we practice, there is a basketball court that is drawn onto the floor, and then you have the actual walls of the gym. And between the line of the box basketball court and the brick wall of the gym there's about i don't know four or five or three or four feet of yeah space. like just enough that like one person can stand there or walk like it's not far so it's, it's not a huge amount of space but it is there's a there's a, a little walkway there and we normally denotate the edge of the field which is to say the place that you can't go off otherwise you're dead as the basketball court line so that the people walking along the edge there have a place to be you know safe and not get run over by angry militant nerds it, it's gonna happen However, my workaround was that I, I've done some parkour, and so one of my favorite things to do was to 
sprint at the edge of the world, like my life depended on it, and then leap once I got to the edge, do a wall plant off of the wall, and then land back on the edge of the world. So my feet never technically were outside, like on the ground. And we probably were like, well, that's a, that's awesome looking. Sure, go I, ahead. I got awesome points for it was the thing. And then a few years into it, suddenly it was like, you know, nobody else is doing this, and it is kind of unsafe. Um, you're going to end up hurting yourself. So I, yeah. I definitely saw people just blast themselves into the wall at least once. Oh, like. yeah. yeah you, if you haven't trained for this, you probably shouldn't do it. That's just that's just a given. Training is important, people. <laughs> yeah, that's just lesson of the day here. That kind of brings up one of the risks of doing, or not risks, but thing to be aware of when doing this is know that that terrain has some limits on you too. Absolutely. It's a place that you can't move either. Yeah. So I, I, what Thumbs was talking about earlier was we were talking about the, like, because he was interpreting it as cornering up, like going into the corner, which is to say you have two of your sides that have an edge to them. It and, sounds great in theory. But, but again, you have no room to maneuver. So unless your army is really good at last stands, because that's all you're going to be doing is last stands, then that's not a great place to be. And it's just a numbers game. If, you know, even if you're getting four kills for every death, mm-hmm. if there's 20 people coming at you and you have no way out then you're still dead and they get to pick when and where they engage you is the other thing maneuver is very important because if you're in a bad position it allows you to get into a more advantageous position but if you're cornered in and they've got you hemmed in then you have absolutely nowhere to go you can still be double enveloped even if you have your back to just one edge but it's a little bit harder they have to work so much harder for they it. do have to work so much harder so uh, it, it's a good point to say that the edge of the world is as much a hindrance as it is a guide in this particular situation. It's the same thing for 40k though. We set up on a 4x6 table and we've got a very defined edge of the world there. In the same idea, if you've got smaller numbers to avoid this double envelopment, just squeeze to one side or the other, but make sure to leave yourself in the room in the back. In 40k, make sure that it's no more than 9 inches, because deep striking is a thing in our game. Unless your enemy didn't bring any deep strikers, in which case, don't worry about it. Yeah, then you're fine. If there's even a possibility of deep strikers, make sure you have that at least, you're, you're at least 9 inches away from the edge, just to cut down on them being able to deep strike back there. But in in Belagarth, there's really no reason to worry about that unless you're worried about overextending. And in which case, there's some other considerations you should be having, like the reserves that we've talked about in previous chapters. I've been thinking about that ever since we did that chapter of how much I would love to actually see reserves happen in the Belagarth field. It's very hard for us to practice in Stygia, unfortunately, because we only get 10 to 15 people on a side at any given time. So the idea of keeping anybody back and reducing your numbers in the front seems very counterintuitive. That being said, I'd be willing to try it too. Yeah, I definitely like have been doing this in, in 40k, because again, the same issue of the, the deep strikers, I always keep somebody behind me just to make sure that my tanks have another little bit of a, a cushion there, that if anybody comes in, they're not right up on me. Nine inch safety zone. Nine inch safety zone, which in Belagarth, I would say translates to about a 20 foot safety zone. Yeah. Dot, dot, question mark. That, that seems fair. Yeah. Yeah, about 20 foot safety zone. If you can, you know, visualize that in the heat of the moment. <laughs> the, oh heck, I have to pay attention to you space. Exactly. So trying not to be as disorganized as Machiavelli was in this chapter. Whoops. <laughs> I mean, not pointing fingers, not pointing fingers at all at both of us. No. In any way. In, in the famously visual medium that is podcasting, you're exactly. totally not exactly. pointing at you us. You can see what I'm doing right. So let's say you don't have the smaller side. Let's say you have the larger side. Should you still occupy the side of the field? No, says Machiavelli. And I tend to agree with him. 
because if you've got the larger side, you want to make sure that you're occupying a large, expansive space that you can exercise field control over. Because even if you don't necessarily have the best army on the field, field control itself is an advantage and an equalizer uh, in a lot of ways. And if you do have a, a equally contested army, that field control is going to offer you more opportunities for attack. Whereas, again, if you have a large army and you're just holed up, it's like, why Why do you have a large army? Just play Space Marines. Yeah. Or I don't know what the, the Belagarth equivalent would be. Dark Angels. <laughs> we're, we're, we're not very big. But you, you can you can see the, the kind of point here. This gives you the best angles, the best ways to maneuver and to take advantage of whatever the field might offer. In, in 40k, it's even more important because in a lot of scenarios, they're objective-driven. So the more objectives you can occupy, the more points you're going to be getting. Field control is absolutely important. And if you have the means by which to acquire it, absolutely go for it. Pretty self-explanatory. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. I don't have much to add here. I'm, oh, you said that very well. All right. Well said, then. <laughs> so when we're talking about maneuvering and we're, and we're going all over the place, um, we also have to remember in most physical fighting, whether it's SEA or Amp Guard or Dagger here or Belagarth, in most cases, we have picked the flattest piece of ground with the least amount of obstacles because we don't want to be run into a tree or twist our ankles in a gopher hole. Enough of a... Oh, hit. I've done that. that oh, yes. the worst... Now, that being said, there are absolutely event sites that incorporate large fields for capture the flag and even forest fighting, uh, especially out in the east where they have these gorgeous forests for it. Oh, yeah, you got to go east sometime, I, it, my It's man. super in the plants. It's just, you know, money. Oh, sure. It, there's a wide grass sea between us and them, so I, I definitely get it. But when you get the opportunity, you who are in the east, come west and feel the power that is western. And you, we that are in the west, we must go east as well and feel the power that is in the eastern. Not to get all gospel on you here, but like, you will notice that your skill goes up when you start traveling. Because the more you learn from the most people, I'm getting ahead of myself. Thanks, Machiavelli. Eastern events, they often have varied terrain to their to some of their fields. And the nice thing about this is that it gives you more opportunities to maneuver. When you are maneuvering, you don't want to give away your position too early. It can be very tempting to occupy somewhere high, like a ridgeline or a hill, because it gives you the best vantage point. However, it also lets everybody else know exactly where you are and lets them be able to move against you. Let's say that they have artillery or archery or some other long-range capabilities, you're a target up there. They're controlling the fight when you're up there. You have more defense. They're controlling the fight. That is a risky move. And this isn't in the heat of the battle, but this is just maneuvering through the fields. When you're when you're not actively engaged in fighting, the high ground doesn't necessarily offer you many advantages. If it's not fortified, again, if you have massive embankments up and you've got walls and that sort of thing, the high ground takes on a completely different meaning. Oh, yeah, then it's amazing. But if it's just you and your bodies on a tall ridge line, then yeah. You're very Everyone vulnerable. can see everything you are doing. Exactly. So keep a low profile when you're maneuvering around and looking for your fights. And this is this is true in 40k as well. The higher up you are, the more things that can shoot at you. It's even more important there where you have a lot of different weapons that can reach all the way across the board. Occupying the tallest thing that you possibly can may be very tempting. The first couple of years I did this, my first thing to do was to put my snipers, uh, my Skitari Rangers with Transuronic Arcubuses to be exa exact, into the highest building I possibly could with 
the best vantage point because in my mind that was where the sniper should be. They never got to shoot because just about every single time my opponent would say oh there's an easy first round kill and mow them off the top of whatever building they were on and they didn't actually get to do anything. So what I thought was an advantage actually turned out to be a massive disadvantage in that particular case. Now if I had put them into a place where they couldn't necessarily be shot at easily but they had a, a limited field of view of just the things I wanted to shoot that's a far better application of the sniper. What I was doing the more general usage didn't end up working out that way. So low profiles unless you have something amazing. You got a Vindicar assassin yeah put that dude in a tower nobody's shooting him anyways but for most troops keep them low and for most things in in, in physical wargaming I would recommend the same thing. Unless you have a physical fortification that's that's standing there allowing you to get an added form of protection the high ground doesn't give you any static advantage. It's always fun when we start on like we'll do a fight on a hill and people will be like the high ground obviously we're gonna win but it doesn't help too much? I mean, if you charge somebody who's on the high ground, yes, math helps in that particular case. But if you are charging uphill into the high ground, then you haven't been listening to the last 17 episodes. You haven't really paid attention yeah, to we, we got much. nothing for you at this point. I've seen it happen. <laughs> The only, the only I've S done it. I'm not saying SCA it's a good choice. I ever went to, I, I watched a man charge f just full force up the hill at a fortified Canadian position. And he, he took like 30 javelins. And, and these, these are like SCA javelins. Like they were out to hurt. And, yeah. and like he went down and I was like, Ooh, yeah, it was, it was, it was bad news bears. And the I rest of his this. team was hanging back being like, what is he doing? We're that doing guy that. almost <laughs> certainly has better cardio than I will ever have in my life. In full armor too. This That's, was in like full yes. brig. <laughs> I'm impressed. It's bad plans, but I'm impressed. No, I, he did it impressively. He got an award for it. I think the Dead, the dead Griffin <laughs> Award or something like that where was for the most ridiculous death. We like, need more stuff like that. I think so, too. Back to our point. Oops. Keep a low profile. If if they haven't come here to hear us jaw jack at least a little bit. Then, then why are you listening to podcasts? Very disappointed. So the next thing, in this same idea of keeping a profile, you're, you're considering sight. You're considering light. You're considering the movement of the air, which brings us to the sun and to the wind. These are absolute considerations that most people don't think about until their arrows are coming back at them because of the wind coming at them or until they can't see their opponent because they're squinting so hard due to sunlight. Machiavelli counsels quite wisely that we should make sure that those two things are at our back if you can. If you can only pick one, the more important of the two is the sun, because that blinds absolutely everybody. But in the case of the wind, it's also an added benefit to at least have it as a crosswind, if not at your rear. Especially in Bell. Yeah. You've got these big padded arrows that are it just going to, like... way more of an effect than you would expect. And then you watch the air, or like the rocks in particular, mm -hmm. just spin back at you, and you're like, oh, okay, yeah. I mean, everything, even javelins, as as stout as they can be, will get caught by a breeze. Um, and, and even in the case of an actual historical battle, the wind can shift arrows easily, especially if you're doing anything in gale force or any sort of storm, like the weather can play an absolute part. Now this doesn't necessarily affect 40k as much, so that's about as much as I'm going to say about that. But in Belagarth, it absolutely does. With as many of different types of fields as I've been on, the sun and the wind are always constant considerations. When I spar you, you will circle and try and get it so the sun is in my eyes. Every time. And then I have learned to do that against you, so we'll do like a weird half moon we dance tango. And... Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> Which is fun. It's fun. And, and and again, I can most people who I can tell think this way, you can tell immediately because you do start to dance with the opponent as, as you both try to find the footing that is going to allow you to circle in that way while still maintaining your pressure on your opponent. I enjoy it. I, again, oh, yeah. I, I figure everybody else is trying to do it to me. So I also try to wear sunglasses on the field. So if it does happen to me, it's like, okay, cool, whatever. I've got sunglasses. I got to admit, I am very in the pro, like in the classic sunglasses argument in Dagger Bell, I am very pro sunglasses. Oh yeah, it keeps things from going in my eyes. Particularly, I'm going to say though, sports sunglasses. Yes, shatterproof, some sort of activity-based sunglasses because I've seen way too many I've been that person. Novelty sunglasses. I have too. I used to wear goggles, these really cool steampunk goggles that I thought made me look really, really cool and they did, but they also crumpled and shattered with direct contact from a weapon and nearly took my eye, so... I've still got a scar on my nose because I had a similar pair of goggles and because it was the Vogue and Stygia like 10 years ago. He liked our steampunk. Um, and Sir Leaf accidentally punched me in the face. Just, there was a lion fight and I was going too close and he just hit the tip of the goggles and I still have a scar like six years later. Yep. I've got mine too, right underneath the eye, right here. This is where Divot caught me with his shield. Oh, I remember that. So, point is, guys, safety. And consider the sun and wind. And consider the sun and wind. And in that process, remember to be safe. Sunglasses are all fine and good. Just make sure they are of the quality that you are going to need on the field. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because if they're not, they're just going to be in the way. They might protect your eyes from the sun, but if they shatter on contact with an arrow, you've got an entirely new problem that hurts more trust me it's a piece of gear like anything else we have make sure it's a good one so after you consider the sun and wind uh we're going to go back to the idea of deployment because at this point machiavelli addressed a different form or a different way of, of thinking about deployment we already talked about deploying based on numbers whereas if you've got the smaller army you go to a side try to find a defensive location if you've got a larger army occupy a larger space so you can make full use of the size of your forces but this particular deployment theory rests on cav numbers. Do you have them? Do you have more than your opponent? Are horses allowed in your game? Are horses allowed in your game? So in something like 40k, we're talking about fast attack. Anything that can get across the field quickly. If you're fighting Tyranids, it's all Cav. If you're fighting Death Guard, there's like two. There's two Cav. They're they're my fetid bloats, bloat drones, but <laughs> I have I have very few there. So depending on your army there. But in, in terms of Belagarth, we're talking about flankers. We're talking about your fleet of foot, usually your young of body. The not um, of me. The not me anymore either but the the people who you know are going to be going doing and and doing it quickly this of course means you have to understand your forces if you're just on the field with people that you don't know you might not have access to this particular piece of information but if they are from your realm or from your unit i certainly hope whether or not you would know whether or not you would consider them (laughs) as cav or not so if you have less cav than your opponent you want to try to occupy the most difficult terrain you can find again in a wide open expanse like most physical fields tend to be you might not be able to actually satisfy this but i've also seen fields where that build a fort out of hay bales or where you have a thicket on one side or even a mud pit that's been put into the ground because of days of fighting in the rain whatever the case may be some sort of difficult terrain that makes it harder to move quickly you want to occupy that if you have less calf 
which makes sense. You're not going to be relying on mobility nearly as much. Whereas on the other side, if you have more cav, you want to stay away from that stuff. Yeah, you want that big open terrain at that point. You want the flat field. Because mobility is absolutely a consideration. It is absolutely an advantage. And if you've got it, you want to use it. Kind of like the big army thing. If you've got a big mobile army, you need to use those perks to your benefit. Yeah. Because that's what you got. If you don't have a big mobile army, don't act like you do. That real confident energy only takes you so far. Yes. Yeah, I, you should always believe that you can win, but that belief should be based on reality, <laughs> not on some delusion. Delusions get met with defeat in, in most cases, so a realistic understanding of what you have and what to do with it is what all of this is about. That's what all of military science is. So in the same idea of being able to assess your own forces as to, you know, what constitute as what, uh, you should know, based on previous podcasts, how to assess strength and weakness. And again, we're not saying that weak units are bad and that strong units are good. This isn't a value assessment. It's just what you can expect from them combat performance-wise in the heat of the moment. Uh, their strength of gear, their strength of armor, their timing grade, their training, all these things contribute to strength versus weakness. The idea with this is to always put your strength against their weakness. Strong versus strong results in a grind fight. Attrition. And that, you, you're never quite sure who's going to win there. Uh, it, it could be anybody's bag. It depends on who gets the right shot when, which side gives ground in the worst way, and these things are random, and you don't want to trust random chance for victory. That's... A lot of times you'll just cancel yourselves out more than anything else. Exactly. You'll just grind yourselves both down to dust, and then it's just it's just a slop fight at the end. This thing here pretty much was Alexander the Great's only strategy, though. Like It's a good strategy. The hammer and anvil, like, well, I trust you not to collapse against their strong forces long enough for me to punch them in the head. Mm -hmm. So it is literally a thousands of years old strategy. And, and the it reason, works. It works. It works. If, if the shoe ain't broke, don't fix it. I'm Sure that's Close a, enough. I'm sure that's a phrase somewhere. <laughs> Glass houses sink ships. So the, this idea, you always want to maneuver your strength against their weak side. Now, it's not always going to be arranged as like their strength is in their left and their weak is on their right. It could be that their strength is in their middle and their weakness is on their sides. Or vice versa, they've got their strength on their sides and they're weak in the middle. Whatever the case may be, they're going to have a weak spot. And that is where the bulk of your strength should be directed. And I know this is very counterintuitive in something like Bell, where I know I tend to line up opposite the side of somebody who I know is good. Because one, I want a good fight. And two, I want to try to be a speed bump at the very least yeah. for somebody. That's actually counter to what military science teaches us. We should be lining like if i consider myself a strong fighter which i'm not sure if i do but if i were to consider myself a strong fighter i would want to make sure i'm lining up against weak fighters i will yeah. say in belagarth though because we're all trying to have a good time be mm -hmm. careful about how you go about this sure because yep. if you're not careful if you're always just like well i'm gonna beat up the largest amount of people quickest you start being kind of mean to the new kids without intending to yes and uh, yeah noob hunting and i'm not saying that while you are in practice trying to get better because your realm practice should be thought about as this training that's very and organization. Fair. That's that's true. Because my whole point in realm practice isn't just to make myself better, but it's to make everybody else in the realm better so that we can all be performing well. We go to a national field and I've got very different priorities. Yeah, my I'm I'm going much more to win there. For so sure. yes, that is still very good strategy, but just because it's wargaming, you're also like hoping the other person has a good time too. too. Don't too. don't so, bully yeah. the noobs. You can you can <laughs> exercise your martial dominance without being a Me. villain about it yeah yeah anyways <laughs> uh but onwards to the very good strategy so strength versus weakness 
you always and so if you're thinking about this you're like wait a second so if my strength is going up against their weakness and their strength is going up against my weakness then we're both gonna just end up meeting in the middle strength on strength anyways so what's the point here's the point your weak side is supposed to know its job and the job of the weak side is not to be a speed bump. It is not to go forth and get killed by the other strong side. The weak side's job is to go forth, stop the motion of the other side, and then fall back as a rear guard to the strong side, trying to preserve as many people as possible. You see it a lot in Belagarth where your weak side and the side that is aware that they are the weak side will have this, like, you see them be like, well, I'm going to last as long as I can. And you can watch them and be like, oh, no, dude, you need to leave. And it's no it's a noble like we're not trying to we're not insulting anybody who's had this mindset because wanting to give yourself even in a in a fictitious way for your your team to win that's that is a sacrifice and there and are times noble. where i will do it too there are but, appropriate times to do so but not all the time yeah if if you are two years in or i don't know just like me and only okay and the four best people in the realm are coming down on you you don't want to have that fight or or even if you're at an event and you're sitting there staring down the four best people at the event and like you're in a line full of people you don't know you're not necessarily the person to go up against them i'm not saying that you turn your back to them and run away no don't be dumb but what we're talking about is a fighting retreat which is where you're you're backstepping you're still keeping your lines you're still holding your ground there's no disorganization this isn't a route that we're talking about. Yeah, if you run, that's a completely different situation. That's, that is that is failure. You have lost. I have definitely run. Oh, but, yeah. But that's when the flank is, <laughs> is done. Like, it's just time to get out of there. But if you can, a fighting retreat to a rear guard position keeps your numbers so that while your strong side is crushing their weak side, you're still holding off the other strong side and then that your strong side can come back around and then they can add their numbers to you and then you've got a much more even fight in front of you at that point. Absolutely. It's all a numbers game. It's all numbers game. Again, I know people who go out there just to have fun and they just, they go attack the nearest person, wacky bats, somebody dies, then they get back up and it's fine. You folks probably aren't reading Machiavelli though. I am. And this applies. <laughs> yeah, I, I like to pretend I know what I'm doing, at least. I like to pretend. I don't know, I don't know if I, like, if Machiavelli came back, he'd be like, oh my goodness, you, you missed it. You missed my point. You the were point, so bad at this. It was right there, and it just, he's <laughs> right past it. So, like, Except I don't know. it in old Italian, but, you know. I could break out uh, in a Ouija board and, and ask them, but I couldn't, I don't, I don't know if that call's tapped. Like, I, I have concerns about my privacy. <laughs> so, yes, <laughs> coming back around to it, recapping. You want to put your strong side into their weak side. We're not talking about dividing either. I'm not talking about, you know, the weak goes off on its own and the strong goes off on its own and they're independent of one another. That's just making a hole. Yes. And then you have an even bigger problem <laughs> than having a strong and a weak side. Oh God, we have a hole. Yeah. So again, you want your strong to go against the weak. The weak falls back into the strong and then you're able to engage the other strong side with more numbers and better position on your side. It's a win if you can pull it off and your opponent isn't doing the exact same thing. And one of the other things he talks about, one of the other things that can, can really use your army to its best is the power of sound. And we've all experienced this. If you've ever been to a sports game of any sort, whether it's basketball or football, I mean, when the crowd got, starts getting super loud and that sound, like you, you literally can't hear anything else in it. Like if you're talking to somebody beside you, they're like, what? What? Like there's, there's that sound blocks out everything else. And it can be somewhat mind numbing too, if you're not prepared for it. It can really shake you. It's uh, trying to hold a conversation when you go to a bar 
on a Friday night. Exactly. It's maddening. And if you're trying to like get any sort of detailed information across, it can be completely prohibitive for that. You can use this to your advantage. I've definitely seen units, Ravenous actually comes to mind, where they created a wall of sound. I don't know if this was a, a policy of theirs or if the one event that I went to that I they saw were them. They were feeling rowdy that they day. They were feeling rowdy, but like it was effective because as you're sitting there trying to communicate with your teammates, you can't because all you're hearing is... <laughs> And it was, it's planned. It's not something that they did and they were disorganized about it and they had no idea what they were doing. It was a part of the way they did things and they were planning to do things, at least at that particular time. And I was very impressed because it's very effective, much like how a stadium full of screaming fans disrupts audibles on the field. So too does a a whole team of screaming people disrupt any other communication that's going on nearby. You have to be real loud to punch through that. And so it's effective. It's, and Machiavelli recommends it. And I definitely definitely have used it and seen it in good effect on on the field of battle and also at sports games one of the loudest was when i went to a nuggets game and like because it was in an enclosed stadium god it got so loud in there like it was very motivating i don't know how the guys on the field got anything done because as a fan i'm sitting there like i imagine there's got to be kind of an adrenaline boost of all of these people cheering for you at the same time though there's that too i'm sure it feels good i'm just imagining now though someone next to you at a warhammer game just being like ah yeah, not uh, not as useful in Warhammer, <laughs> for certain. Unless you've got Noise Marines, a, a very select portion of Chaos gets access to a, a cool unit called a Noise Marine. It's much what it sounds like. They have a sonic generating weapon that blows their opponent apart. It's pretty cool. With the exception of those guys or some shrieking attacks that the Tyranids <laughs> have, you're not going to have access to this very human weapon of the Wall of Sound. Unless you can like consider the fact that most tournaments are held in... In crowded rooms oh yeah that's fair which is to say that if you've trained at keeping your head together and communicating clearly while in a very clouded crowded room full of a lot of different voices doing a lot of different things a lot of them talking about the same thing that you are like if you can't talk about numbers while hearing somebody else talk about numbers you're gonna have a bad day disadvantage yes the idea is to give yourself as many advantages as possible so uh, that would be another good example i guess well, uh, look at us we found an analogy <laughs> didn't catch that one in the first second or third go around y'all were here present for the epiphany you're welcome next up (laughs) next up we're going to the last part of using your army before we transition to the next part which is the provisions against flankers we've talked a lot about how to deploy your own cav or your own flankers but what do you do against them how do you how do you keep them from being effective against you this was another thing that we had to really look for in this chapter because Machiavelli starts and he says i will tell you three things to prepare against chariots is what he was talking about i'm taking the analogy and running with it for flankers. oh yeah because he was all about the scythe chariots the scythe chariots exactly oh, so cool. he's like let me tell you three ways to prepare against these and he tells you the first one very clearly and then he goes off on a tangent and i'm not sure if he ever came back to the idea he never addressed the idea again he kind of went over it so i i pulled two more points out of there if i missed it i'm sorry i read through it like three times this time around trying to find it but the man must have been drinking his vino during this publication after changing out of his peasant's clothes yes his peasant's clothes i'm sorry i just love that quote from him anyways he's he's ridiculous <laughs> it's one of the reasons we adore him renaissance um, italians your provisions against flankers should be thus we've already talked about tight ranks 
that keeps people from being able to punch in and get in get in between and, and have more mobility. So having tight ranks on in the in your front line keeps people from get, being able to get through in the first place. Shoulder to shoulder with your buddy, not so close that you can't swing. Not not meaning literal physical shoulder to shoulder, but as close as you can be without impeding your opponent is best. It's also good to consider that not everybody is right-handed. I, as a left-handed person, when put into an organized shield wall, had a very difficult time in the center of it because my body is... Kept whacking the guy next to me, or like almost whacking the guy next to me. So we actually, I ended up being on the left flank like every single time because I was left-handed. But this is something to consider. If if you're looking at the person next to you in line, at Aukfast, I can clearly remember there was a dude who was standing to my right and I was standing to his left. No, no, no. Other way around. He was standing to my left. I was standing to his right, and I was left-handed, he was right-handed. And we just seemed to have the same timing on shots, and that, like, every time he punched forward for a shot, I was punching forward for a shot, and we ended up punching each other in the knuckles, like, three or four times, standing next to each other. We were on the same team. We are on the same team, and we just, like, are just punching each other over here, and it was bizarre. Luckily, most left-handers, because we're so used to this, know to go over to the left side. We do. I was being obstinate and just going wherever right then. But, you can't uh, tell me what to do. I'm going to pop real mom Octfest, <laughs> or even my fake mom i haven't claiming to be it's a weird thing to say but yeah so tight ranks tight ranks keeps it together tight ranks keeps keeps uh the people from being able to punch through in the center but people can still go around the, the outsides right so tight ranks doesn't protect against flankers who are coming in from around the side this is where the reserves idea comes in handy we've been talking this whole time about keeping a force back whether it's your rear guard that has fallen back to become a reserve or their whole point was to be back as a reserve part of what they can do is absorb a flanker or reposition the battle line in order to deal with a flanker Another good point to this is counterflankers. Now, this can either be offensive or defensive. And like an offensive flanker would be that while their flankers are coming in, you're sending your flankers at their at something they value. Spears, archers, officers, something like that, that draws their flankers back into formation, takes the threat away. The more classic deployment of a counterflanker is defensively, meaning to say that their their whole job is to watch for and engage flankers who are coming in. So-and-so is definitely going to come up this way. Make sure we have a counter for that. Yep. Yep, that's that's a counterflanker. That's somebody whose job it is to do that. Remember, reserves can go wherever. If the front line starts to get weak, the reserves can go up to, to reinforce. If a flank gets vulnerable, the reserves can slide over and reinforce that. But the whole purpose of a counterflanker is to do their namesake. Anything else on using your army? I mean, that's pretty straightforward. It is. Uh, so before we get to the battle that we've chosen for today, which I'm, I'm really excited about because this is a period of time that Thumbs knows a lot about, and so we're, we'll get to that in a second. We'll talk about these considerations that a captain should always have when going into battle. Always have an advantage. Now, that advantage can take many different forms. It can be that you have a location advantage, which is to say that you were able to get a fortress or a, a fortification of some sort. The sw- the positioning that you want, the location, has been played to your advantage. The sun, like we talked about earlier. Yep. Literally any of the stuff we talked about before. Yep. You can have an advantage in organization. This is often found where... We've talked about the dangers of composite armies before, where you have multiple people who are in charge and there's no real clear chain of command. This is less organized than than an army that has a very clear leader, has a very clear chain of command, and has a very clear vision. Organization can absolutely be a deciding factor. Next, you can also have quality or quantity. If you've got better troops or more troops, these are also advantages. And then the final one, and this is especially true 
true in Bell is tech can be a huge advantage. If you're using very basic gear that weighs a lot, isn't aerodynamic in any way, isn't well weighted in any way, in, in such a way that it's balanced, then you're going to be at a massive disadvantage to somebody who's got lighter gear that is better balanced. It's just constructed differently. Oh yeah, the tech boost is absolutely a thing. If you hand me a two pound sword that passes, I'm not going to do nearly as well as I will with, you know, the one I've handmade for myself with all of the settings exactly how I like it. The Uthbert Blade. Uh, for anybody who knows the history of that, it was a huge battle-breaking weapon. That uh, we're not. This isn't an episode on the Uthbert blade, so uh, I recommend you look it up if you don't know what that is. But it was the terror of Europe for the longest time, and it was a tech advantage that was clearly given to the, the Vikings. Yeah, if if it's better made, it's going to last longer. It's going to be faster. It's going to do yeah. So always try to have an advantage. Always pursue having an advantage in a fight. But Machiavelli says. If you don't have an advantage and you have to fight, always do. You're never going to win if you don't try. Even if I look across the field and I see a better arrayed army or better fighters than I am, I'm always going to give it my best effort because I've surprised myself. And Machiavelli says that too. He's like, you might surprise yourself. You might put yourself out of a situation by sheer dumb luck that you wouldn't have normally if you had surrendered or capitulated in some other way. Uh, there's almost always a point somewhere where you're fighting and you, you can just, you feel your team being like, oh, oh, we don't feel good about this one. When that happens, if you can change the odds, great. But worst case scenario, you'll just be like, okay, it's gonna give as good as I get. Yep. Yeah. You, and, can, and you can win that way. Like You can. Keep that positive attitude. And that actually comes in a little bit later uh, when we're talking about oratory and the importance that ha that has for a captain. In the same idea of, of always having the advantage, a dramatic charge, even though it feels like an advantage, never is. Always avoid dramatic charges. That's the next thing that Machiavelli says. Always stand ready to return them, which is to say to receive them. So if your opponent charges you, don't try to move out of the way unless they are way bigger than you are. But a, an army that is charging in such a way becomes disorganized and begins hitting you in waves like we talked about. That means that you can absorb them in ways if you're ready to do so. If you're not ready to do so, then they're just going, then the charge will probably work. But a prepared army can almost always receive a sloppy charge. Yeah. If you start running, you're both going to be running and they'll be running in a way that they can hit you. Otherwise, especially at big events, we'll see it a lot with people like i'm just gonna burst through that shield wall everyone follow me and then no one follows them mm -hmm. because no one knew to follow them or whatever because the din of battle you could just hear somebody going <laughs> yeah what we're talking me. about with the sound thing and you're like wait what and then suddenly there's a big opening on your side so be real careful it's not just yourself you're putting in danger when you're charging it's the people next to you because you suddenly they don't have your defense yep yep don't don't create a hole where there doesn't need to be one it's all about the numbers game so Avoid dramatic charges, but always stand ready to receive them because you can really put the hurt on your opponent if you're prepared for that situation. But a captain should always surround themselves with good counsel. This is the next point that Machiavelli makes. No matter how smart you are, no matter how well you know your topic, no matter how well you know battle or war or wargaming or whatever the case may be, you're not going to see everything. You're not going to catch everything. You're not going to have all of the best ideas or perspectives. You're just not. So the best captains surround themselves with good council, people who know just as much, if not more, than they do about whatever topics that concern them and talk to them 
frequently. You want a varied council. A varied council and one that you're able to go to often. These things are very important. Uh, and again, experts, just because somebody is your friend or just because somebody flatters you doesn't mean that they're good counsel. That doesn't mean that they're necessarily going to be useful to you. Good counsel is somebody who gives good advice on the subject that you're looking for. And they may not be popular and they may not be the prettiest or they may not be the best spoken, but good counsel is good counsel and you should cleave to it when you find it. It's also important when you're being the counsel to make sure you're saying brave things. True. Especially if you don't have to make the final choice, come up with the crazy ideas. That's your job. Yeah. Your job is to throw it out there, and then if the commander's like, you know what, that's feasible. Obviously, don't throw something out there that's absolutely not going to work. But just because something is not traditional doesn't mean that it's not going to work. Yeah. So, being good counsel and having good counsel are both very good, th very important things about being a captain. Because, again, we talk with our enemies. Some of my best friends in the sport are not members of the Dark Angels, and they're not members of the Triad. Thumbs here is a member of the Gelf. Well, there's a lot of crossovers between us. That's probably a bad example. I aim for you when you're on the other team, but you're also, <laughs> you know, we do a podcast together. But like... we take counsel together. That's one of the benefits of what we do here, exactly, uh, is that we can be, quote-unquote, enemies on the field and still be friends and learn from one another. Well, so you, you and I have had scars, too, before where one of us will be like, wait, how did you just do that thing you just did? And, like, stop and explain it. So, like, it's the joy of wargaming. You can mm -hmm. be a council and then you can go to war. And then everybody can improve together. So yeah, good council is extremely good. And what Thumbs was saying earlier, we're going to come back around to that right now. You need to believe that you can win. That comes from two things. Of course, you need to have the ability to win. And then there's also just the power of belief has its own power. The confidence projects onto the field, not just into yourself and into your own fighting, but into your teammates as well. If you if, go into the fight going, oh, I'm going to die, you will. You probably you will, will absolutely die. You probably will, unless noob food decides to work out in your favor. But you can't plan for that. You really shouldn't. <laughs> you really shouldn't. But some people are just like, I'm just going to do whatever. Well, then uh, you're going to win 50% of the time. I like odds that are a bit better in my favor. And that and that comes off because this, again, this believing comes from ability and it becomes infectious. Very true in 40k as well. I've, I've definitely gone up against opponents who defeated themselves even before I did anything. They were looking at my models or just at my list and they psyched themselves out. They were like, oh my gosh, you've got this particular thing. Oh my gosh. This game is designed to be balanced. There are no game-breaking units in 40k, or at least they get nerfed pretty quick if there are. So being unduly afraid of a unit just because it's on the field, you, I've, I've already won. And you're going to get back up again in 10 seconds or two hours and the case of a warhammer game but it's not permanent it's not forever so psyching yourself out and i know this is easier said than done i i definitely have issues with anxiety i'm sure a ton of people have issues with anxiety it's a human reaction to be like oh god pain even if it's not real pain but it's just something to work on it's something I, like whatever you need to do to psych yourself up for again for me it's music i like to put on something motivating before i go and do something that gets my blood up and then suddenly i believe in myself because it's a, a technique that i've been using since middle school to motivate myself it works very well for me not just because music is good and motivating but also because i've told myself that this works so many times that it does whatever whatever it takes whatever it takes to make sure that you got that motivation that you believe because as captain especially because this section is for the captains this is for your unit and your realm leaders the people calling the shots on the field if you don't believe your army can win it can't absolutely it's important this is something that just kind of came on if suddenly you just started believing that you can't win it's time to step down because that that disbelief is infectious so believe that you can win and to help this spread to others like we said this belief is not just useful to you as an individual fighter or to you as an individual commander 
commander, but it can spread. It can spread like wildfire to everybody who is in the army. And it can spread like wildfire to your playstyle in 40k, this matter of belief. So how do you get that to transfer as effectively oratory? Like we brought up earlier, oratory is the best way in order to project an inner positivity onto a larger group of people. Again, likely not going to be using this too terribly much in the same way in Warhammer 40k. <laughs> I mean, you can give your models pep talks. I definitely yell at my models when they do poorly. Beetle Boy in the Blight Lords, he dies first every single time, and I, I love yelling at him. But it, Maybe it doesn't you have... tried positive reinforcement, Malark. I play Death Guard. That's we, not really a positive reinforcement kind of go. We don't do repositive reinforcement. <laughs> <laughs> but but in something like Belagarth or SCA or Ampguard, something where you've got a physical army, other people around you, heck, even like Airsoft, this oratory can be extremely effective. And I'm not I'm not saying that you have to get up and give a grand speech like Colonel Chamberlain gives in Gettysburg. I'm not saying that I memorized that speech and, and paraphrase it when I'm trying to motivate people in any given way. No, you would never tell anyone I would, that. I would never do that. I would never do that. I'm not saying you have to do it either. <laughs> but there are some very good ways to work on oratory. One thing is through media. Like I said, I, I have a soft spot for old Civil War movies, and they always have dramatic monologues. Now, you don't have five minutes to monologue, so figure out how to paraphrase it. But the same principles can be used for a short speech as for a long one. Learning from media, or from books, or from shows, or from classes, whatever, whatever it takes, because not everybody is a good public speaker to begin with. I wasn't a good public speaker at all to begin with. I had a very, very bad stress-induced stutter that was with me up until about freshman year of high school. And then I had a speech and debate coach who stood behind me with a rolled-up magazine. And every time that I said, um, or like, or things, or had too long of a pause, I got smacked by a rolled-up magazine. Man, we need that guy for this podcast. How for you, for I, me? I was going to say, I catch myself. I try to catch myself. Sorry, sorry, that sounded way meaner than I intended it to. I mean, I can get a rolled-up magazine, Thumbs, and we can just... Hostile work environment. I can just go for the kidneys every single time. <laughs> that'll, that'll learn you real quick. <laughs> That's, it's defeating the purpose, Malark. It's not the exercise. Oratory, learning oratory is is it can be a, a, extremely important. Any any leader, whether it's realm leader or a unit leader or an event coordinator, needs to know how to speak effectively to people. So whatever it takes for you to get to that point. Again, for me, I did a mix of acting, speech and debate, improv, and just watching movies that had dramatic speeches in them that I wanted to act out. I guess that that is where I picked. And then, of course, the, the military helped too, because drill sergeants have a, an amazing way of, of figuring out how to say something very concisely and meanly. And if you drop off the mean part, <laughs> you're a very effective It's very good play for commander. wargaming, yeah. <laughs> Just don't don't be mean about it. You can still use drill sergeant voice as long as you're saying positive things to your team. I love to say things like, you look gorgeous, let's get them. People love being told they look gorgeous, right? It does. It makes my whole day. It works. It works. You look gorgeous, Thumbs. Thank let's you. get them. Let's get them right now. And now Thumbs is tackling my equipment. Thumbs. Oh, no. Stop. No. Ah. This oration. What, what is the purpose of it, though? What can oration achieve? Well, the first thing he talks about is religious unity. Unlikely that we're going for religious unity unless you're a member of the Great Hunt, in which case, go Dread Gods. If not, then religious unity, not so much what we're doing. Dehumanization of the enemy is the other thing he talks about. Again, we're sitting down at the end of the day having beers and telling stories around the campfire together dehumanizing your friends not great no don't. now 
these yeah <laughs> thumbs he's so mean and don't like the colors of his vest that's a lot of colors you do not like any colors in well i mean case. i'm, I'm kind of colorblind i i, I don't like the gray of his I, vest i hate it it's so gray <laughs> anyways but what can we actually do instead of what this? can we do we can remove hope i know that sounds bad <laughs> i'm sorry <laughs> just remove hope entirely just <laughs> take it away no just lie down remove hope except for victory if you're if you're telling people you know what there's no way out of this we can't run anymore we have to fight them in in some way instilling in people you know what there's no other options this needs to happen right now that absolutely can be motivating because a lot of times people can be thinking about other things in Belagarth, point out that it will be fun you'll you're be gonna go in, down you'll be back but it'll be a minutes. funny story or it'll be a good fight it doesn't matter if you lose if it's a cool way you lost it's true it's true a good it story sounds is a weird good story. but i love telling stories about when i lost because like then it's a good story, and I seem humble. So go out there and lose, because then you can tell stories and seem humble. Oh, yeah. Ish. And then the last thing is to instill courage. This this is the opposite of removing hope. But to instill courage, again, to bring people up, to, to talk to them. The last the battle we talked about last week, we had talked about after that first defeat, when Caesar spoke to his troops, that he said, well, you can earn the honor of being called my army again. Oh, if we go man, forth it worked for so well. Dude, that oratory, though, am I right? That was Caesar's entire thing. Or he just, <laughs> good looks and luck. An oratory. That's what Caesar had going for him. Hey, it can go, it get you far. It can get you far. And again, the purposes of all this, a captain should always be trying to inspire love, not just of themselves, but also of their country. And in this case, country can mean unit or realm. But you should always be trying to inspire love, not fear, not hatred, not division. A captain's job, a leader's job, is to bring people together and to unite them under a common purpose, not to turn them against one another. So this is always important to remember. The last thing to remember when you're considering being a captain is always capitalizing on your victories, which is to say, because you can say, well, well, something small like this, we're always changing over. You know, I win one battle, but that doesn't have anything to do with the next battle. I'm talking all about in one battle. Let's say that your side crushes the opposing side, but you've got another part of your team that's struggling on the other side of the field. Rather than just slowly amble over there, move with haste. Move on to capitalize on your victory. You've got a numbers advantage at this point. You need to get over there because if you don't, by the time that you do, perhaps the numbers will have evened and you don't have an easy victory sitting there anymore. Yeah, even if just they've had time to get ready for you, can completely counter that advantage. Exactly. So this quick movement, this celerity and getting across there and, and capitalizing on your victory is extremely important. And I think that the, the battle this week emphasizes this extremely well because this week we're going to be talking about the Battle of Canine from the Second Punic Wars. So our battle today is going to be Canine from the Second Punic War. But this is one of Thumb's absolute favorite periods of history, so I'm going to turn it over largely to him, and I'm going to be the chatty voice. Sounds good. Uh, so I really, really love ancient history. Like, if you can go more than 2,000 years back, I'd automatically want to know about it. I don't know what it is that, like, thousands is more interesting to me than hundreds. The, the thing is, the Romans are not necessarily the most exciting people of this. This is the Romans versus the Carthinian. Carthin- Carthaginians, Carthaginians, right? Yep. In uh, the Second Punic War, but the nice thing about the Romans is we know so much about them. Very good records. 
you know, a lot of like Greek battles, it's Herodotus told us this and we believe about a third of what he said and we have no way of backing it up. We have the letters of Romans that they sent to other Romans being like, did you see this thing I did? Because here's what I was thinking about. Insulting like, other Romans. Oh man, that guy was an idiot. So it, it is, it's an interesting point of period just because we it's the first time we have such a complete world of it. Very good records. It's also a very complicated point of the world. So we're going to be talking about the Battle of Cani here, but we're going to jump back a little bit to explain how they got here in the second Punic Wars. Because there's three Punic Wars in total, and they're all super interconnected. Yeah, they, 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 they're as interconnected as World War One is to World War Two. You wouldn't have had World War Two without World War One, and conceivably World War Three. But we're not getting into that. We'll tonight. get to that. <laughs> Anyways, the Punic Wars were first started between Carthage and Rome when they were battling over the island of Sicily. Mm-hmm which is near both of them and close enough though strategic for everyone. And it was a very wealthy island. So everyone wanted it. Central to the Mediterranean. Very good for the shipping lanes. Highly defensible. Great island. Uh, when we think of Rome, we think of like the immortal, not immortal, but like invincible empire. And this is just when they were just about to get to this point. Rome had become a major Italian power, but it wasn't a, so it was a major regional power, not like on an international scale. Carthage was much the same way in Africa. And as these two rising stars on the international stage, it was kind of inevitable they were going to fight. Rome had a great army. Carthage had a great navy. Romans had no navy originally. And the story is at least that they they uh, got a navy by finding a broken Carthaginian ship and making literally a thousand of them. <laughs> Reverse engineering. And this is finest. what Rome was, one of the things Rome was so good at. They're like, you, we can't do a thing. Don't tell us we can't do a thing. And it worked so well that they were the dominant naval force for the next 600 years after this battle. And they just copied them. But the first Punic Wars goes back and forth. No one either. No one has a like definitive winner, but Rome wins. Kind of in, in similar to World War One, kind of that exhausted. We're gonna stop. Mm -hmm. Also similar to World War One, the losing side got really beat up on. A lot of tariffs, a lot of economic sanctions placed against them, a lot of money that they had to pay to Rome to pay for so-called damages. And Rome took over a couple of cities during this time. Mm -hmm. Like Rome bullied them in a way that Carthage really didn't necessarily deserve to be bullied here. Like they didn't lose that badly. Um. But Carthage ends up expanding to the south, makes a whole ton of money, and even as at one point to Rome, like, hey, what if we just pay you off everything we owed you right now? Rome's like, Rome's like, no, no, you can't do that, because then you wouldn't know us anymore. So Carthage did not have a good opinion of Rome here, most specifically Hamukar, which who was one of the leaders of the Carthaginian military, mm -hmm. and he raises his sons to be like, you will get your revenge on Rome. You will get your revenge on Rome. Because this whole situation bred such a, a, an air of resentment for Rome in general. Again, think about Germany after the, fir the First World War and how much resentment was able to be capitalized upon because of the unfair sanctions that were being placed against them and the undue suffering that was being placed upon the citizenry. And because of this, we ended up getting who one of the greatest military commanders of all time, though, in Hannibal. Yay, resentment. Hannibal son of Hamilcar is legitimately one of the most, from a military standpoint, one of the most impressive people in history. Most people have heard of Hannibal because he very famously crossed the Alps with elephants. That's insane. Has a very recognizable name. That is ridiculous now it was literally thought to be impossible back then and he almost didn't make it i mean the alps are the alps they're they're a wall of earth that is like thick 
Rome was feeling super confident about all this because they're like, well, they can't cross the Alps, so they'll have to sail here and we control the ocean now, so whatever, Carthage. And so Hannibal's like, well, I'm going to cross them Alps and loses like half his troops. Just loses so many people falling off cliffs. Like just, you know, because there would be uh, this entire 50,000 man army going single file across this horrific mountain range while trying not to step in elephant stuff. So he loses like half his troops. He gets to to Italy with 25,000 troops. Not many. So many people. Mm -hmm. Rome can put out 10 times that number when they're prepared, but they weren't prepared. So the, the, this really lazy army, not lazy, but inexperienced army rolls up, thinks they're going to win. Hannibal just wrecks them. And and not just wrecks them. Wrecks them to such a colossal scale that the numbers are still staggering to this day. The the losses during this battle were... Because we're talking about... No, this is before... This is before... This is before Canada. I am getting ahead of myself. No, but I mean, even so, the, the losses are horrific. Yeah. In, when we were talking about Battle of Hastings, I was a 10,000 versus a 7,000 man army. Mm-hmm. Hannibal's tiny army is bigger than this. Yep. But he was hoping that the that the Gauls, that the Goths, that the everyone would roll in, help him out. He was expecting that the bully pulpit that Rome had occupied for a while at this point had sufficiently irritated their neighbors that when Hannibal showed up and was like, "Hey, you want to want to beat on Rome?" They'd be like, "Yeah, sure, let's do that." And and they'd had limited success because Rome was did. a bully, but. Rome was a rich, powerful bully, so it was risky. Who invested uh, in, in the infrastructure of their neighbors as well. But Hannibal has a couple of great battles. One of them, the late Battle of Lake Tracia, I want to talk about a different day. So just great battles, very solid strategy. Rome actually installs a dictator during this time for a brief while called Fabius, who creates the Fabian strategy, which is just don't directly engage with Hannibal. Yep. Like, do not mess with this guy. <laughs> we got to train our armies up first. Just trust me. But he finally gets his armies trained up. They elect two new proconsuls. And you know the names of these two because I can never remember them. Oh, the first one was Gaius Terentius Vero, and the second one was Lucius Aurelius Paulus. And these two, uh, Vero and Paulus, decide that it's time for the big fight. We've got the army trained. We're going to go. Remember the Roman proconsul, so the Roman heads of state, also are the heads of the military. They're the generals. And Rome had a trouble with this their entire existence. Because like we've been talking about, an army that has a unified control, which is to say one person in charge, tends to do better than an army that has a diversified control. So naturally, this policy of having two leaders would become problematic on the field. Well, and then you combine it with the Roman ego pride thing of like, I need to be the person to gain this recognition. It became very difficult what they would do is they would have one day one guy would run it the next day the other guy would run the army and it would just back and (laughs) forth and they're arguing we should mention here one of these proconsuls is going to come out looking extremely bad I mean, they both came out looking pretty bad. But, but, but like, one specifically is the one that gets all the blame in the ancient sources. Livy yep. is our main source that we have for this. And he does not have some nice things to say. About, again, I have forgotten the names because I cannot remember Roman names. Vero and Paulus? He did not like Vero. Livy was very pro-Senate, very pro-upper class, and was also very pro-Paulus family because the Roman families were powerful for generations. The patricians. They were like the ruling class for Rome. Vero was... Poor, or not poor, but not upper class and made his way up here. He gets a lot of credit for making the bad decision, but take it with a grain of salt. 
It was probably mutual because yeah, they were both. It, it could have been completely charge. true, but it was just his bad luck that it was the day that he chose to fight. And Livy had some salt for his boy. The the Roman army finally goes. They usually would send four legions for a battle like this. They send eight legions. They are so freaked out about Hannibal. Which translates to about eighty six thousand troops. For reference, the city of Missoula is seventy three thousand people strong. Has more troops than I have in my whole city. Yeah, this is a huge army. Hannibal as we said, has 25... He's assembled 50,000. Oh, he's up to 50. Okay, so he's doubled his army. He hasn't gotten the massive army he was hoping for yet. That's still about two to one odds, though. He is still wildly outnumbered here. In foreign country. He's like, well... If we let them envelop us, we are dead. So we're going to envelop them, which is a just ballsy strategy. But it ended up working out because of the deployment that they ended up choosing for this battle was normally, like we've talked about before, the Romans were very good about making sure that they had ranks, reserves behind the reserves. But this particular time, they went super deep. Like it almost resembled more of a column than a line of battle. And if they had spread out, they could have completely countered Hannibal's strategy. But like we were saying, they had the larger army and they didn't go for field control because they didn't believe in themselves. They were doubting themselves this entire time. Hannibal was this monster on their doorstep and they had psyched themselves out at this point. And so they had huddled in close together and it actually counterintuitively it, it proved their point it did because what hannibal did was he made a specific weak point in the middle mm-hmm. with his gallic troops his his people that were coming to help out and then he put his crack trained carthaginian troops on the wings but what he did what was so brilliant about this was he made sure that the middle even though it was the weak point would not collapse by putting himself right in the middle with it. That inspires some confidence. He stood with the weakest point being like, yep, you're my allies and we are the weakest point here, but I am standing with you. So obviously I'm not just throwing you away to die. And what he did is he advanced and he advanced slower and the wings advanced heavier and they just turned in on this Roman like column, as you said. He was able to hit this army from three sides and the Romans were really good at fighting from multiple sides, but more than two is just not tenable and when you start to slam people against one another they you start to lose the space by which to throw a shot at all like you're already pretty close when you're fighting in a roman uh, legion style and so they start to crunk much closer together and suddenly you can't really move your arm you don't have the ability to wiggle out of there and your shield while it's getting pinched away from you because of the weird angle that it's pressing up against the dude next to you so it's not serving any good so this this motion towards the center was amazing and and hannibal like we were talking about with this chapter he made it so that his weak point was in the center because the romans didn't bring flanks at all like they, they yep they, they were like we're just gonna smash the center and he's like see look how easy the center would be to smash and so he did he was like here's gonna be my weak point right here in the center come on in and then he put his strong points on the flanks did a double envelopment and even with nearly two to one odds had and this is what i was saying before should have gone right now one of the bloodiest days in world history like these numbers still held they are horrifying uh the the numbers that died on this day are about the same as what happened to the british uh during the first day of the somme campaign in 1916 world war one automatic weaponry trench warfare chemical weapons they did not have these things during the Second Punic Wars. Nope. It was the power of your arm. When we're talking terms of overall losses here, 
Polybius puts the Roman losses at about 85,000. Which is the whole army, which is yeah. everyone that was with them. That is every single person died. All but all but like a thousand of them by this calculation. Like okay. a pittance gets away. Livy puts it a bit more conservative at about 67,000. The Carthaginians lose like 5,700. That's it. It should be noted. I looked this up just because I was curious because I'm just staggered by this number. I'm always the person that's being like, how many people died? In the Revolutionary War of America... Less than 5,000 Americans died. In total. In World War I, 116,000 American soldiers died. So many more people than that died, but just the American army. Vietnam, 58,000. It's not until World War II that these numbers become dwarfed. Right. This is so many people on one tiny battlefield. The blood literally slicked the ground. Like It literally made it difficult to walk. Imagining the sheer amount of, of slaughter and carnage that, that occurred here, it's hard to do. It's extremely hard to do un unless you've been there and, and you don't ever want to be there. The, the Roman cavalry, the people thought they might actually be able to escape. Legend has it they got off their horses because they're like, we have no chance here and this is such a shame to Rome that we're going to go down and we're going to take as many people as we can. And it clearly did not work well. Nope. Because they lost about 17 people for every Carthaginian or Gaul that died. I have rarely had that KDR in anything, whether it's a video game or in a fake sword combat game. Like two or three times in my entire career. That is a really high KDR. Dang. At this point, Rome is losing their mind. They think oh, yeah. they are dead. And and for good reason. I mean, they just had this massive army go out and get crushed. And not it, it wasn't like a grinding thing where Hannibal was like, oh, I've lost so many troops, I can no longer continue fighting. He loses a pittance of his army compared to literally destroying the army that Rome has sent at him. And he gets more out of this because a couple of nations go, oh, wow. Oh, and he knows what he's doing. Oh, sure. That's a huge vote of confidence. They're like, well, he just crushed him. He had two to one odds and, and crushed him. Hey, we, how about we go with that dude? He sounds like a winner. But for reasons that we don't know, for reasons that people have been wondering about since the day it happened, Hannibal doesn't take Rome here. Nope. And he could have. It was right there waiting for him. Again, the patricians were freaking out. I think they, at one point, they ended up burying four people alive as a sacrifice to, to figure out, because the oracle was like, I need, for more information, I need you to bury four people alive. And they did it. They just did it because they were... <laughs> they really they were here. bringing in teenagers into what was left of their legions. Mm -hmm. They were letting slaves in, which is unheard of. And they were time. they were setting slaves up with the gear of captured and vanquished foes. Right. So there's stories of slaves being dressed as Gauls from like the north in the middle of the army. And we don't know why Hannibal didn't invade Rome here. Part of it is possibly this. Hannibal was not looking to destroy Rome. That wasn't the goal here. I mean, it, it, it was a matter of getting them off the stage they wanted them to get out of carthage's way not so much wipe them from the face of the yeah, planet yeah prove that it was a it was a hiccup that they were a regional power and then maybe they could pay carthage for a while because rome yeah. is crazy rich here and it's so much less work if they just give you the money and so he sues them for peace and any other country i gotta say any other country would have capitulated at this point any sane country would yeah. have capitulated they would have capitulated point. two or three battles ago so as much as i kind of like yeah rome there is something insane and kind of amazing about them because they were just incapable of admitting that they were dead wait well, you know romulus and remus were raised by a wolf right yeah. yeah but sometimes a wolf knows when they're dead rome was like oh you think i'm dead okay i'm gonna dress up my slaves as a gall and let's try this again and i, I wonder if some of it might also be that hannibal may have just become 
burnt out on it. Even if you're the victor in that that case, seeing that kind of destruction, seeing that kind of death, I can't imagine anybody enjoying that. I can't imagine anybody wanting more of that. Yeah, that's horrific. And I imagine he was like, you know what? I I did it. I bloodied their nose in a big way. There's no reason to press on and do more of this. Unfortunately, Brome didn't capitulate, or fortunately, I mean, depending on how you look at it. And... It took them 11 more years to beat Hannibal. He never outnumbered them. He never, but he was just so unbeatable. Solid commander. I am sure we will have more stories about him later on. Absolutely. I mean, both of us uh, enjoy talking about him and, and the African campaigns is actually, I know a little bit more of there than I do about the European campaigns. Well, even um, then, I don't know. They didn't end up killing him at the end of the Second Punic War. Nope. He just wandered around for a while and was rude to Rome. Because again, you have that good of an opponent and it's like, well, gosh, I mean, when we were talking about Caesar last time around, that wasn't something that he wanted to do. He didn't want Pompey killed, but when Pompey fled to Egypt, Ptolemy had him assassinated and Caesar was furious about it because, you know, you could say that he wanted to imprison him or he wanted to humiliate him, but it also, you know, you have a worthy opponent. You don't necessarily want them to die. So yeah, but for whatever reason, Hannibal just didn't clinch it here and they ended up paying for it. Yeah, it changed all of world history. Which, like we were talking about right before we began this section capitalize on your victories at the very least he could have sacked rome as bloodlessly as possible and rome probably them. would have given in at that point oh yeah i mean yeah you've got a sword to somebody's throat the tune changes a little bit who knows it's the battle of canai which, which i've been reading is canai like canape and i'm not sure if we went over this beginning but it was the 2nd of august 216 bce and this is around apulia in southeastern italy is kind of the uh, the area that we're talking about. Well, I think that's all that we've got for tonight. Thank you guys so much for tuning in and listening in to part four of Machiavelli. We're going to be back next week, hopefully discussing some more battle reports or event stuff or unit stuff, if, if anybody wants t- us to talk about that on here. But otherwise, we're going to be talking about part five of Machiavelli. You can always catch us at our Instagram. I'm trying a new style there. I'm going to be trying to post more factoids and information about the previous episode throughout the week to engage with you guys a little bit more so you can find that instagram art of board gaming podcast at instagram yep email you can find us at art of wargaming at gmail.com facebook and facebook is the art of wargaming just just check us out um you'll see and then as always uh please repost like and subscribe to what you're hearing it helps us be able to do more we have our own website now for art of wargaming too oh we have a website we have all of the social media but you can also find us at taowargaming.com taowargaming.com yeah. i love it i love it we just um, got that set up so it's still we're adding it last i list. knew that was still in the works so i am stoked to hear oh, that I've it seen it. Looks nice. Ooh. you can find our other you will find our other earworm podcasts general nerdery and fried squirms mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. can find all of us at earworm.com which is E-A-R-V-V-Y-R-M. If you enjoy this, you'll probably enjoy at least one of those. And like we said before, always be sure to repost, like, and subscribe. It is so helpful. Very much so. Until we catch you next time, this has been Yaga Malark. And I'm Thumbs. Signing off.